This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 16th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The prayer is given by Aaron Wartiz, and the speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Let's go to prayer. Lord, Lord, thank you so much for being our consoler, our medicine, and our physician. Sometimes you came to people and you said to the paralytic, what is it you want me to do for you? And you already knew, but sometimes we don't want help. Sometimes we don't ask for help, and sometimes we ask for it in the wrong places in the wrong ways. But Lord, let's just keep it simple. We know we can come to you and that you hear us before we even cry out. So we come to you, thankfully, with our hearts full, knowing that we have this treasure in jars of clay that show the surpassing power that belongs to you, that you are so willing to share with us. And even though we may be afflicted, we're not crushed. We might be perplexed, but we're not driven to despair, and we certainly aren't forced to live there for very long. We might be persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And we might be struck down, but we're not destroyed. So, Lord, I pray, God, your people, your saints around the world and in this room, that we would not lose heart. Even though we feel like we might be wasting away, our inner self is being renewed today. And we receive all that you have. And we want to see the unseen, Lord. We believe you are a very visible God. And we, are know, we know that you are waiting to be gracious to us and you exalt yourself to us. And there is a blessing for those who wait on you. And so sometimes, Lord, we just need to spend more time listening and waiting, which is hard because we're not very patient. And we're thankful that you're gracious. And as soon as we speak, we know you hear. And we know that you are a good teacher that will not hide himself. And we, as we listen, we know we will hear this word behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it, turn to the right and turn to the left. We commit marriages to you, unsaved family to you, our pastors and leaders, new Christians, everyone around the world who is seeking, who've heard the message or maybe haven't heard. We pray for all these things in your name and by your power. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 28, and we again are going through the story of Jacob, which is um, about 10 chapters or so in the book of Genesis that leads to the story of Joseph. So I'm going to begin in chapter 28, verse 1. Read the whole chapter. should be on the screen if you follow along with me. It says this, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethul, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. 
So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naboth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Now, Throughout Genesis, beginning partially here, but extending into the Old Testament, God describes Himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He doesn't continue into the God of Joseph and the God of Judah. He just stopped with those three. That makes Jacob the third patriarch of the faith. And the next few chapters we'll see is the journey of this sinful mama's boy to or into a very faithful young man. And Jacob is, is literally at this point running for his life. He has deceived his father. He has cheated his eldest brother out of his birthright and blessing. And he has taken the Lord's name in order to, or taken in vain in order to hide all of his sin. And even though uh, he has found and obtained what he most desired, we find that he actually has lost what he most loved, which is his family, his home, and many other things. He obtained the blessing, but it's not doing him much good at this point. He's going to end up living in exile for some time, or at least what feels like it. So fearing his eldest brother's rage, his mother overhears that his eldest brother wants to kill him as soon as dad dies. He is told to flee to her hometown in order to save his life, but also to find a wife because mommy does not like the Canaanite women. And so, with one final blessing, 
His father Isaac asks that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham through his son Jacob, and he sends his son on a very long journey. And Jacob is then alone because his father has died. He doesn't have the inheritance, which means he's relatively penniless. He goes on this journey, very painful journey, that's going to keep him from his home for 21 years. And so in three or four chapters, we have 21 years of time that's going to transpire. His journey will begin at his hometown of Beersheba, which means the place of the oath, and he will travel to Haran, which means the road. And this road that he walks on is very hard, it's very painful, but in the end, it leads him back to the place called the house of God. So you can see he starts with the house of promise, or the house of oath, the place of oath. He goes on a very long road, and he comes back to the house of God, which ultimately describes the journey of all of us. And in that journey, before he comes back into what he calls the house of God, he is changed. And he is changed through the many struggles he has. Jacob's life, as we have read it and will read it, amounts to a series of fights and conflicts with different people perpetually. Some of the conflicts he creates and some of them are created for him. He struggles with his brother, obviously. He struggles with his uncle, eventually here. He struggles with his sons that will be born to him. And at one point, he even struggles and literally wrestles with God himself. But by the end of this journey that he's going on, his heart is transformed and his name is changed, literally changed. He goes from being Jacob the cheat. That's what his name means. He goes from being the cheat to being Israel. The one who triumphs with God, who prevails with God. He goes from the cheat to the conqueror, but it takes this very long and painful journey to get there. Jacob's life, I think, represents the journey that every single person who ever is called by God goes on with God. And it's a journey that is a painful transition. And by painful, I mean it goes from a place of self-dependence to a place of total God-dependence. It's a journey that takes us from uh, really relative selfishness to a place of selflessness, which is usually pretty costly. It's a journey that takes us away from from living for our own comforts, from living for our own self-glory, to living for the glory of God, even if that makes me uncomfortable. But every journey begins with a moment of revelation, an interaction with God. Abraham's happened just as he was about to enter the promised land. And we see here that Jacob's is happening just as he's about to leave the promised land. And God comes and He meets Abraham and Jacob and ourselves in this in-between place. It's this place that's not really our home, and it's not really our destination. It's the place where we don't really expect to meet God, the place that we're trying to just get through. 
The place that we're not intending to stay for a long time. The place where we expect nothing to happen just to get by. After traveling for a couple days, Jacob has probably gone about 10% of his journey. It's 550 miles to where he's supposed to go. After a couple days, he stops and he settles in what the Bible calls at the beginning of 28 there, well, the beginning of his story, a certain place, a nameless place that they just call, he stopped at a certain place with no name. Jacob is certain where he's supposed to go. He's supposed to go to Haran, he's supposed to go to this hometown, but he is uncertain where he is literally, and he is uncertain about where he is spiritually with God. In many ways, he doesn't know what God thinks of him because he has put himself in a pretty dark place because of his choices, because of his sins. He's not sure, what's God going to do with me? And as I've said with every Bible story that we read, every, every uh, letter in the New Testament that we read, we have to be careful looking at the examples of the people in it and learning the wrong things because the Bible is God's self-revelation. It's about the Lord. He's trying to teach something about Him, not something we necessarily need to do, but someone that we need to worship. And so in this particular text, in Genesis 28, we see a God of all grace who meets us exactly where we are at for the purpose of going on us with a journey or for a journey that will ultimately bring us back to where He is. And that's an in-between place that is painful, but most transformational. Well, as I said, everyone who is called by God, I think, goes on a journey with God. Abraham went on a very long and winding journey with God. His son Isaac went on a much shorter journey with God. And Jacob now is going to go on his. And every journey that we go on, everyone, if we talk about the journey of faith, our path of faith, our story of faith, they're all very different. They all have different turns and hills and, and things that have brought us to the place where we're at with God. But the truth is, every single journey, every journey that begins with God begins the same way. And it begins, as it does with Jacob, with a revelation from God. Although we experience it, like as, it, as we consider our journey with God and when it began, it feels like we found God. It feels like we, we went and discovered Him or, or was seeking after Him or came to this place of understanding. That's what it feels like. I chose to follow You, God. I finally agreed with You, God. I stopped fighting. And it feels like from our perspective that that's what's happening. But in truth, it's probably better described as God finding us. As God pursuing us. Biblically, if you read Romans 3, you'll see that there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who wants and is looking for God. There's no one, it says, who even fears God. All have sinned, it says, and have turned aside. Jacob in this text is not out looking for God, hoping that God will show up, seeking God, but God comes looking for him. And God finds him. And God speaks to him. As I said, 
he has traveled likely 50 or 60 miles, and he settles down, camps for the night, and he fluffs his rock that he finds, and he lays on it, which isn't totally unusual in that area of ancient times. But it does give you a picture of there's nothing there. He's like, he laid next to the stream, or he relaxed under the beautiful palm trees. It was like he took a rock and laid his head on it. Like there's nothing there. There's nothing special about this place. Nothing comfortable about this place. Nothing to think that this place is going to result or, or create anything but just get through it. No one is there. He seems to be alone and nothing is expected. But as he falls asleep on his nice rock pillow, he dreams. And he dreams a very perhaps familiar dream to you. It's a dream with a ladder. And some would translate it a staircase. So whether you believe it's a ladder or a staircase, we're accomplishing the same thing, right? Some kind of ramp, some kind of ladder, and the base of it is on the earth, and it goes up into the sky, the heavens, and on this ladder you have angels. And again, we think angels, what? You all have a picture of your own angels, right? Some of you are picturing like little muscular dudes with swords, and some are little babies with little harps and wings. Whatever, right? You got angels going up and down this ladder, and you have the Lord either standing above it or standing aside, depending on the translation. But you get this picture of what's happening. In ancient times, that it's a weird picture. It's difficult to understand. Like, what does this mean? And I have read countless interpretations of it, some that would just freak you out and make you laugh. And everyone seems to focus, like, what is this ladder? What is this? And they get really creative with it, and they many times miss the point of it, I think. If nothing else, we know that what this ladder and these angels and the Lord stand there represents is, is God's connection to mankind. What is the, the pathway? What is the, the bridge between this world and the next, the place of man and the place of God. But the central point of the vision is not the latter. And it's not the messengers. It's actually the message and the Lord Himself. That is the most important part of this vision. The Lord shows up and He begins to speak. What He says is infinitely more important than the picture that is created, though that's certainly important. But what he speaks, it's important to understand who he's speaking it to, right? He says to Jacob the very same promises that God had declared at first to Abraham, declared again to Isaac, and now he's declaring them to Jacob. Jacob, the blessed deceiver. Jacob, the sinner. Jacob, the one who's dishonored his family, robbed his brother, used the Lord's name in vain to cover it all. He comes and says, you're going to have the same promises that Abraham did. Reminding us that God's promises are not dependent upon man. That God's promises and the fulfillment are dependent upon Him. He keeps His word when men do not. And He keeps His word to sinful men who more often than not do not. He says this to him, you're going to have land. The land you lay on is going to be yours as I promised Abraham when he first showed up and it was filled with Canaanites. Second thing he says is you're going to have numerous offsprings. Mind you, he's not married yet. So he's just told him what's going to happen when he gets to Haran. Namely, you're going to find a wife. 
You're going to have numerous children and grandchildren. You won't even be able to count them. The same thing he says to Isaac and Jacob. And he says, through your children, the entire world is going to be blessed because from Jacob will come the 12 tribes of Israel. From one tribe will be Judah. And from that tribe will come our Savior, Jesus Christ, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson who will bless the world with his presence. And so he passes the mantle. He, he shows you why and how he becomes the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That this one promise is carried through this one family and God's election and favor is sure that his plan of redemption unfolds this way. But then he gives promises that he didn't have to give. It's like a bonus. And we're, if we're careful or not careful, we'll read right past it. In verse 15, he makes these other promises And you have to ask yourself, why these things? He just told Jacob, you're going to be the fulfillment or experience the fulfillment of my promises that I gave to your great-grandfather or your grandfather and your father. But he speaks, I think, to exactly where Jacob is. He speaks things that Jacob needs to hear because of some of the things that he hasn't stated, but he actually believes. Imagine Jacob, the blessed deceiver, is probably sitting there, guilt-ridden, filled with shame, afraid and uncertain of what's next, wondering what God thinks of them, wondering if the blessing that has been given to Abraham and and given now to himself, is God really, why would he ever make good on that? But here's what God says to him. Things that he needs to hear. First thing, I'm with you. I'm with you, you sinful, deceitful person. He didn't say that part. That's who Jacob is, right? I'm with you. More than that, I am going to keep you. I'm with you, Jacob, and I know exactly who you are. And I'm going to keep you, Jacob. I'm going to go on this journey with you. And I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to be right next to you the entire way. Even as we go out of this promised land. And he says, more than that, Jacob, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to this place. I'm going to restore you back to where you should be. In my presence. In my land. Now, Those are some powerful things to hear. And many of us here are sitting perhaps in shame, in guilt, in fear, wondering, what does God think of me? And the only thing you need to hear is God say, I'm with you. I know you. I know what you've done. Some of you are sitting there going, man, I... I'm beginning this journey that's scaring the snot out of me. And all you need to hear is like, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. And as you wonder where this journey is going to end, because you're, you're wondering about all the costs and, and the sacrifices and the pain it's going to include and, and just the things you don't know, he says, don't worry, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back and, and everything will be good. That has just got to be powerful to Jacob. Because Jacob is in this place 
where God doesn't feel near. And he doesn't feel like he's protecting me. Even if I've created the situation myself, I, I doubt he'll be leading me, but God comes in and tells him those very things. And there are a lot of understandable reasons for Jacob to feel that way, ones that he himself is responsible for, like unconfessed sin, unresolved relationships, or just a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what's next. It's amazing that we talk about often about God being near, like, oh, God, I don't know where he's at, right? And oftentimes that distance is a result of unconfessed sin and unresolved relationships and uncertainty that he's actually with you. Even though he has technically been blessed by his father, Jacob has got to be wondering whether God's going to go with this blessed deceiver into this new world. Because, heck, he created the problems. He's put himself in this situation. But God is a God of grace. And God shows up and declares without condition. Here's what he says. I'm with you, and I will go with you wherever you go. That is so powerful. There are times in our lives when we're in those places we feel so alone that we simply need to hear God's revelation of I am with you and I will go wherever you go. Now, the amazing thing about this place where Jacob's at, and he may not realize it, I don't think he does. When Abraham, his grandfather, first came into the promised land in Genesis chapter 12, he went to a place just east of this, and some would say it's the very same place. And it's the first place where Abraham built an altar. And it's the first place where Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And after his, Abraham's, journey down to Egypt where he sinned, the first place he came back to after he repented was this same place where Jacob is either right next to or possibly at. And that is where he worshiped the Lord again. And that is where he called upon the name of the Lord again. And what you have is this picture of this certain place, this unknown place, this place of wilderness is the same place that is sacred. You know, we often don't put the sacred place and the wilderness place together, but what if that's the same place? What if the place where God meets us, where the God most reveals himself to us, is that sacred place of wilderness? Not just the sacred place, not just the wilderness place, but the sacred wilderness. That's where Jacob's at. A place where he doesn't expect to find God. He only sees desolation, but that's actually where the worship of God first began in the land. And it's in this place where he meets Jacob. Full of guilt, full of shame, full of fear, God comes to Jacob exactly where he needs to meet him. And this is where his journey to manhood, I mean faithfulness, begins. Jacob awakes from his dream. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Which is an interesting statement because it kind of implies that he should have known that. Like, I, I didn't even see it. Because oftentimes we're so focused on the desolation, we're not even thinking about God's presence in that moment. 
biblically, we realize, I hope, that God is present everywhere. And that when we talk about God feeling distant and God falling not near, that's not because God has moved anywhere. Psalm 139, King David asks rhetorically, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I feel or flee from your presence? The answer is you can't. And in those dark places and in those wilderness wanderings, God goes with you there. God's presence is, is not made known by us finding Him. Where are you, God? Right? Searching for Him. God comes and He reveals Himself to us. We can't just manufacture transformation. I believe God interrupts our lives. And He transforms us at times and places and ways we least expect it. We never would choose it. But we most need it. There are many emotions we would use to describe those kinds of places and those kinds of meetings, right? Joy, amazement, maybe love. I felt so much love. But it's interesting. The chief characteristic of an encounter with God is fear. You'll notice it says, Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place in verse 16. And I didn't know, and verse 17 said, and he was afraid. He was full of fear. Now, Pastor Tim Keller, I like how he states this. He says, in the original language, fear of the Lord doesn't mean afraid in the sense that we like, oh, I'm scared. It means the sustained, joyful, astonished awe and wonderment before and of him. Jacob was afraid, but in his fear, you can see his heart because what he says is, how awesome is this place, exclamation point. And that's not like surfer, like, oh, this place is so awesome. It's not like that. It's like, oh, like the word awesome has lost its power. He is awed. He, he is nearly speechless. This place is awesome. He even goes as far as to say, this is like a gateway to heaven. This place is, is where God touches down, where I have met God, I've felt God, I've seen God. Jacob has been transformed. In a moment, Jacob was transformed. And in that transformational moment, everything changed. His circumstances didn't change. He's still there laying on a rock. How he views everything has changed, knowing who he was and what he has done and even what he was on his way to do. Everything has changed. His view of God has changed. God is not some angry boss waiting to smite him for all the bad things he's done. He is a loving Father who chased him and pursued him and jumped into the middle of the sin pool that he was swimming in. His view of himself has changed, right? I am so worthless. I am the blessed deceiver. I'm the one who cheated. My name means cheat. And God comes in and says, no, you, you're my child. You are going to be the one through whom I bless the world. 
He views where he is at differently, which I think is incredible. This might actually be the most important thing. It goes within, what, 10 verses from a certain place to an awesome place. Right now, many of us in places that awesome is the last word we would use to describe it. We'd say, it's a certain place, and the best thing I can think of it is that there are rocks to sleep on. But when God comes and opens your eyes, when God comes and says, I'm with you here, I will go with you there, and we will come back, and it will be okay, you begin to look at that certain place as an awesome place. Everything changes. That place becomes incredible. And more than that, his view of his future has changed, right? He was uncertain. He didn't know what was going to happen. But now, the road to judgment has become a journey to restoration for him. Like God said, I'm going to go with you. And although he doesn't know how it's going to unfold, he doesn't care now. Oh, you're going with me, God. Cool. Let's do this. If you're not going with God, and you know it's going to be a difficult journey, a lonely journey, a painful journey, yeah, a lot to fear. But if God is with you, nothing to fear. I believe this is the experience of everyone who was called by God. That this has happened or is happening with everyone who is called by God. The question is, do you remember that moment. For those who are in Christ, for those who believe, for those who have confessed that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you believe He died on the cross for your sins, you believe He rose from the dead. For those who call to believe, there was a moment in your life where that became real to you. That was your in-between place. The place you never expected to be, but the place you were and the place where God came and met you. And the place where in a moment your view of God and yourself and your future and the place you were at and the purpose changed. Your circumstances may not change, but that moment changed. That place in time when you were alone and scared and God showed up. Do you remember that place? Where was your Bethel? For some of us, it, it maybe was at you know, in college or maybe it was when you were younger or maybe it was at a particular church. And it doesn't mean as you look back that everything was amazing about that, but you remember that time and that place where everything changed for you. Do you remember your Bethel? I believe that these kinds of places, real places, tangible places and moments are important to God. And it's not that we need to Remember the place itself as much as we need to remember what happened in that place. It's kind of like a, a spiritual nostalgia. It's the only way I can describe it. I won't ask for hands, but I wonder how many of you have seen that new show on Netflix called Stranger Things. Oh, I love that show. Let me tell you why I love that show. I am proudly a child of the 80s, okay? Love the 80s. It was the most amazing generation. I can just name countless things that came out of the 80s that are awesome, right? But the thing about this show, Stranger Things, is it takes you back to that time. It's not the storyline itself, which is very 80s, but it's not the storyline. It's just the 
feel of it, the music, even the lettering, everything about it just screams 80s. You know what it does for me? It raises my affections for my childhood. It reminds me of all those glorious things where I'm like, oh, I'm watching my kids, and they're like, eh, this is pretty cool and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is amazing in so many ways. And that's what it has to be for this Bethel moment, right? It's not that you look back at that monument in your life and that moment in your life and everything about it was awesome and it never went bad. It's when you look back at that moment, it doesn't just increase your affections for that place, but increases your affections for God. Whereas you remember and you go, oh, man, I remember when God showed up. I remember when God, and you start to grow in your affection and love for who God is. Jacob takes the rock he's sleeping. There's nothing special about this rock. I, I really think the place is so desolate. He's like looking for something like, you know, like he erected the most amazing gemstone. Of, well, he doesn't do He takes this rock he's sleeping on. He's like, I'm, whatever I got, boom. And he sets it up. And he anoints it with oil as they did often as a pillar to remember. And he calls the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. And he intended to mark this place and this moment where God met him. And it would have several functions. The stone would remind him as he goes on this very long journey and as he comes back. It would serve to remind him. It would serve to remind those who were his children. It would serve to remind his children's children of several things. First and foremost, this was the place where God reached down and met me, a deceiving, dishonorable, lying cheat. This is where God met me. Dare I say, this is where God forgave me. This is where God loved me. This is where He met me, where I was at. And secondly, this was the place where God committed. He promised I will go with you wherever you go. I remember this because it's been 21 years since I've got back here. And the third thing, this is the place. This is the place where God promised to bring me back, promised to restore me into His presence, into His land, to fulfill His promises, to make all things new again. Jacob was not establishing a monument to remember what he needed to do for God. He was establishing a pillar for generations to remember what a gracious and loving God did and does for sinful men. It's like the cross. It's no different than the cross. See, the cross is that place where we go back to and we remember, we go, man, I'm bad. Do you recognize that the cross is the place where it shows you how sinful you were? Like, you're so bad. I'm so bad. We're so bad. It required the blood of the Son of God to cover our sins. But the Son of God willingly covered our sins. You see that love? Right? You have that, oh, it's a monument of like, man, I'm bad, but I'm so loved. 
I am, I am such a sinner, but I, God is so gracious. That's the cross. And that's similar to the monument that Jacob has put up here. We can imagine how important that would be in the future as he journeyed into the east, made some serious mistakes. Jacob's life was not perfect from this point on. Made some serious mistakes and he experienced great hardship. But he rested in this moment for 21 years until God would call him back to this place. We need those kind of monuments. I was sharing with a group of pastors, uh, I should say they were sharing, about how to deal with discouragement, which is not something only pastors deal with, but it was a good discussion. And he brought up a psalm I thought was powerful that he uses. And it's a powerful monument when we find ourselves in those places that just, uh, we don't want to be in, that are desolate and lonely, fear-filled. Psalm 73 is that kind of monument. Psalm 73 is really interesting. I won't read the whole thing. But it's a psalm of, of a journey for all of us, but for this particular psalmist. And it begins with a very honest observation of the evils around. Just looks around and go, man, this is horrible. My life is horrible. I don't want to be here. In fact, he begins the psalm by saying, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps slipped. He looks around and is like, yeah, God is good to the pure in heart, but my life's pretty horrible. And then he proceeds to fill most of the psalm with complaints as he looks about his world and looks at his own life and he sees evil prospering. And he complains and he complains till about verse 17 in the middle of it until it says he came into the sanctuary. To the house of the Lord, if you will. And his mindset is changed as he remembers something. And at the end of the psalm, after lamenting all these things, he says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I have you, God. And you have me. See, the monument that Jacob makes, and the monuments I think we all need to consider making, is something that he will go back and look at when times are difficult. And this is what he'll remember. I remember that God was with me then. I remember that God was with me then, and so I know that God is with me now. I remember that. As an aside, I will say this. We must be careful. In time, there is a house built here, a house of the Lord, a house of worship, and right now it's just one stone. The house of Bethel becomes an incredible place of great worship, but it also becomes a place of great idolatry. And we have to remember that as we celebrate these moments and as we think about these moments, and we even put pillars up to remember these moments when God met me, to not let that moment become more important than the mediator. To not let that memory 
actually pull you away from God as opposed to draw your affections toward Him. We have to be careful there because that can happen, and it happened in this very place. But right now, it's just a stone, and it's a heck of a monument. But even though, as he sets this monument, Jacob is not asked to do anything, God's revelation compels him to make a vow. And we'll close by looking at this vow. Verse 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go, and I will, He will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. See, some commentators propose that at the end of this, Jacob hasn't really learned and he's kind of bargaining or manipulating God by putting conditions on his commitment. Well, if you do this, then I'll do this. As long as you do this, Lord, then I will commit to you because you've proven that you can be trusted. You've earned my worship. I don't believe that's what's happening. I believe that Jacob is making promises based on his faith in the promises God has already made to him. If you look at the vow and you compare it to the promises God made, it's, it's almost identical. And so instead of making it an if-then statement, change if to since. Because I think this actually reveals the deep-hearted new convictions of Jacob who has gone from being a deceiver to a believer, who is beginning this journey of faith and trusting God. Instead of saying, if, you say, since you will be with me, you will be my God. Since you're going to keep me, this will be your house. And since you will bring me back, I will give to you a portion of all that I have. Now, I doubt that the point of the vow especially the last part, is for us to be impressed by Jacob's commitments. I'm not sure God's real impressed. Oh, 10%. Thank you, Jacob. Wow, I gave you life and forgiveness and many other things, and you've given me 10% of your stuff, which you have nothing at this point. Thanks. That's not what that's about. What this is revealing is Jacob's true intentions. And it's revealing the heart of someone who has really experienced the grace of God. You realize Jacob at this point has nothing. So he's showing his commitment, what he plans to do, and it's a reflection of his heart, not a a measurement of his faith. Because when you're convinced of God's gracious love for you, when you are convinced that He will go with you wherever you go, no matter how dark the journey might be, when you are convinced that He is devoted in that journey to keeping you and protecting you and providing you whatever you need. And when you're convinced that wherever that journey leads, it's not the end, it's the pathway to full restoration to be in His presence, then you will make such a vow. Jacob makes a vow to say, I will worship you, God. I will set you as supreme in my life, as most important as the authority in the way that my life is governed. He is saying in that you will be my God, that it is in you and your promises that I will find my identity. It is in you alone that I will find my security. It is in you alone that I will find my joy and my purpose and my hope. Can you say the same? 
Because that's what it means to worship God. Where He is the determiner of all things, the governor of all things, the one in whom you find all things. So if you lose anything else, it doesn't matter because you have Him. And not only that, He says, I'm going to worship in a place. It's going to be worship that can be seen. It's going to be worship in such a way that heaven actually touches the ground, right? Worship can be so ethereal sometimes, so mental at times, and not actually be real. Localized in a real place, in real time, beyond the mind, in such a way that can be seen and felt. And that's the last part. He is going to give. His worship is going to cost him something. He's going to sacrifice something. And although he has nothing at this point, he is going to worship with every tangible part of his life because he knows every tangible part of his life is a gift from the Lord. And when he gives, it doesn't say, well, I'm going to make sure I give 10% off my gross income, blah, blah, blah. It's not even about money. He didn't say money. He says, my life. Man, we get weird about tithing. The Lord wants, just so you know, 100% of your life. But as we give back to God, he asks for the first fruits. And that's the first fruits of every aspect. Our time, our talents, our treasure, everything. He's not asked to make this vow by God. He's not commanded by God to make this vow. This is just a reflection of a heart of a guy who knows the grace of God and says, I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to give you my best. We're all on that journey. For many of us, it started a long time ago, and perhaps the journey has gotten stale. For some of us, we're at the beginning of that journey. For some, we're in the middle of it. And oh, each of our journeys has looked different, has different turns and twists and experiences. It all began in the same moment. And it was the moment that the cross, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ became real to you. Your mind needs to go back to that moment. And let that moment where your entire perspective was changed govern your affections for the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus actually claims to be Jacob's ladder. In John 1.51, he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the connection to God. He is the pathway from this world to the next and beyond. Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven through which men might be saved. And Jesus Christ, by His own confession, is the way, the truth, and the life. And the cross is the monument of that promise that He is who He says He is. And it is that monument that declares, I meet you exactly where you're at. I know your brokenness. I know your deceptions. I know your shame. I know your guilt. And I'm with you. He is Emmanuel, right? Prophesies as God with us. And when He was with us, He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the last thing He told His disciples in person was, I guarantee I will be with you till the end 
of the age. And in Revelation, it says he's returning to make all things new. That's our monument. And that should be our focus. The question is, did you believe that yet? Did you believe that at the beginning of your journey? And do you believe that now? Do you believe that he is with you? Do you believe that on that journey you never chose to go on, in that place where you never expected to be, that he is going with you? And do you believe that he's going to bring you back and restore all things? Do you remember that transformational moment? And if so, is that moment still transforming you when God was awesome? Is he awesome now? There's some of you here today, the only thing you need to hear is this. So let the Lord speak to you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. And for others, you need to hear that Jesus is going to go with you. He's going with you. He's not leaving you alone. He's going to keep you. And for others, you need to be reminded that this journey that's really difficult that you're on right now, I know Jesus, I know you're with me, I know you're sanctifying me, I know you're protecting me, I know that. This journey's not the end. He's going to bring you back. He promises to restore all things and to bring you back into the house of God, into his presence, where there'll be no tears and no brokenness and no sin. My prayer this morning as we come to the table here you remember that place, that time when Jesus became real to you. And for those who do not know Jesus, maybe that's your moment right now. Maybe it's your Bethel moment where you see not just the brokenness of your sin, but you see the great love of God that covers it. And you're reminded of his promises that as you take the cup, which is his blood, and you take the bread, which is his body, you remember what he told his disciples, Right? I will drink this with you again in the kingdom. He is coming back. Be reminded and let this be an encouragement to you that Jesus is with you wherever you go and he is coming back again to fulfill his promises completely. Find hope, find joy, find strength. Let's pray.